This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Cold weather and a unique electrical grid left dozens of people dead and millions of Texans without power. Even as people were trying to figure out how to meet their basic human needs, the ideological fights began with blame leveled at both the failure of alternative energy and state-level deregulation. Both stories have problems, according to Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation magazine. When I looked at a map of the various electrical grids in the United States, there was a big hunk that just was Texas. Um, What is the relevance of that fact to our discussion about these massive blackouts with fatal consequences uh, uh, in Texas uh, in recent weeks? Some commentators think it has a lot to do with what happened. I am I have questions, but I'm less sure that it has a lot to do with what happened. But for our listeners, uh, there are three alternating current interconnected transmission systems in the United States. There's the Western Interconnection, west of the Rockies, the Eastern Interconnection, east of the Rockies, and then there's Texas. Texas does not have alternating current links with any other transmission systems in the United States. It it has a a limited direct current links, but those are not that useful. So the question is, would uh, ability to transmit power from neighboring states, also many of whom were cold during this blackout in Texas, did they have, did those neighboring states have reserve capacity that was underutilized, which if it could have been transported into Texas, would have made a difference. Uh, and the my preliminary analysis suggests there probably was some capacity in Oklahoma or Louisiana, although probably not much because they were also cold. But the loss of generation resources in Texas was so extensive that the supply elsewhere would n- have nowhere uh, prevented what happened. It w- it would have reduced forced blackouts that occurred in Texas, but it would probably not have eliminated them altogether. But I could be wrong. That's my initial guess, and we'll have data later that that confirms whether I'm accurate or not. All right. So with respect to what caused this sudden uh, change, uh, both in the pricing of electricity and uh, the ability to even generate electricity, what were the big forces at work that left so many people without power? Well, we're trying to figure that out. I mean, basically, we thought initially about a third of generation capacity in Texas went down. I read an article in yesterday's Washington Post that now gives an estimate of more than half. Texas is kind of an 85-gigawatt system. And this article said that uh, about 52 gigawatts was out. I mean, that's that's stunning. If Initially, we thought it was in the 30 range, 30 gigawatts, 30, 35 gigawatts, about a third. No one plans for a system in which half of generators are incapable of producing power. So the next question is, all right, why were they out? And we don't know, but we look at previous Texas blackouts in the winter, And there are two possibilities. One is, for those who don't know, uh, Texas power plants are largely outside. The turbines, the steam, the water, 
all those things are not inside buildings. And thus, uh, they're in a 2011 blackout that occurred in Texas in the winter from in a similar cold snap. Uh, there, the jargon was Texas generators failed to winterize their operations. So now the question is, what's the cost-benefit analysis of that? If, if something doesn't happen very often, uh, should you deal with it? When we lived in North Carolina, um, one time it was four degrees in Chapel Hill and our water froze in the kitchen. And we, I kind of dug around and realized, well, they didn't put enough insulation in the, you know, in the crawl space. And the answer, so, so it's that kind of cost-benefit question, which is, given how it got six degrees in Dallas, so should you winterize your operations? Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean building a building. It basically means putting heat tape on sensitive things uh, and using antifreeze where water needs it so that it doesn't freeze up in your boilers. It, it sounds like you wouldn't need antifreeze in a boiler, but for the water feeding system, if it's exposed to six degree weather, the water in the pipes is, is going to freeze. So there's a puzzle, a lingering puzzle I have about winterization of operations and how extensive or not extensive they were or weren't. And this has happened before, and the reports I've read suggests Texas electricity generators in general don't winterize their operations. So the question is why? The second and related issue is the natural gas supply. It looks in, in the 2011 blackout, about 10% of the generator failures in Texas were the result of not the generators being unable to perform, but it's that the natural gas supply, which powers the generators, failed. So you say, well, geez, I didn't know natural gas was temperature sensitive because it, it's not in the Dakotas, right? Well, again, they're natural gas wellheads, right? There's a, those little Christmas trees, you know, you see in the ground or just above the ground in pictures. Natural gas comes from deep underground and it is associated with water. So there's water in natural gas coming out of the ground. If your wellhead is not winterized, whatever that means, I, I'd hope probably heat tape plus insulation, then the natural gas actually freezes at the wellhead. And so the whole thing shuts down. The second part of water in natural gas is even if it doesn't shut down the wellhead, it then has to be separated from the natural gas before the gas is put in the pipeline. And the water is stored in containers. And then contractors and people go to natural gas production facilities and they have to empty the water and take it away and deal with it. If that doesn't happen, sensors automatically trip and the well shuts down. So some convent, so in 2011, that accounted for 10% of the generator failures, that they just didn't have any fuel supply. I don't know how much it mattered this time, but if it mattered a lot more, and I've read one paper that said it did, uh, there's a paper that said production in December in Texas was about 20 some odd billion cubic feet uh, per day. And then in, in the, during the blackout, it was only 11 billion cubic feet per day. So that's, wow, that's half. So, if, but natural gas is stored, right? It's stored in underground salt caverns. And so unlike electricity, you can actually store natural gas. So this paper said, uh, on average, wells in Texas freeze out four days a year, but they never worry about it and they don't winterize because 
natural gas can be stored. So again, there'll be, uh, you know, analyses by federal and state regulators about how big a deal was the reduction in natural gas supply this time. So, and that could have played a much bigger role, in which case all the discussion about the electricity system that we're having in the media is actually misguided. It's actually all about natural gas. And we then would have to ask, what would we want to do about that and whether the price system itself would be sufficient to deal with things? Let's talk about the relatively small group of people who took advantage of a program that allowed their electricity rates to float. That is, it's not a, really a rate of return on the provider of the electricity, but these people were basically banking on this kind of event not happening. Correct. There was a, Texas has total deregulation in the sense that everybody, there's no default provider in Texas. In Maryland, we have deregulation, but if you don't do anything, you're assigned a default provider, which is in fact your old local utility. And then the Public Service Commission of Maryland has an auction, et cetera, et cetera. In Texas, there's no default. Everyone, if you do nothing, you're just randomly assigned a retailer. Okay. One of those retailers, one of the business models in Texas of the 300 retail providers, it was, the name was Giddy, and they had the following proposition. We'll charge you $9.99 a month and we'll give you the wholesale grid price. And that's all you pay, full stop. That was their business model. 29,000 customers in Texas signed up for this. Well, on average, the grid price in Texas is about five cents a kilowatt hour. So that for, for those 29,000 people, their bills were low by anyone's standards. Uh, during shortages, though, the wholesale price rose during the, the blackout for the generators that were remained online. They were getting not five cents. They were getting nine dollars a kilowatt hour, nine dollars a kilowatt hour, right? It's 150 times. I mean, so the media has been full of stories of people getting bills for 10 or $15,000. And they say, no, oh, this is, oh, we got to do something. And regrettably, the governor of Texas saying, who's strident Republican says, well, geez, I sort of like markets, but I don't like this one. And uh, the company itself, here's the weird thing. The company itself informed its customers days before this happened, given the weather forecast. It said, please leave us now. It's going to be horrible and you're not going to like it. And in Texas, you can switch quickly retail providers, but most people didn't switch quickly enough. But again, if you really believe in prices, you can't just have prices when they're low and not accept them when they're high. That's called a fixed price contract. And you can't, I mean, if you oscillate in and out of this, it creates externalities for managing the grid that are, that are large. The people who signed up for this, uh, shall we say, free market electricity uh, to be delivered into their homes, they had to have smart meters in order to do that. What is a smart meter? What does it uh, enable? And what does it mean for, for these customers? Um, smart meter, but old, old traditional electricity meters were mechanical and they just measured your power use during a month and that's it. 
uh, new so-called smart meters uh, have computer chips and have internet capability and the grid manager and the meter can be in contact in real time. And for example, in Maryland where I live, the uh, my air conditioner is part of an electricity reduction program that can be used during peak demand in the summer. You can have the same thing in Texas and one can set uh, anyway, it allows individual control of every customer by the by the system manager. Uh, much of Texas has these kinds of meters, but in fact, um, they're not really used that much. <laughs> so we, in other words, they're not operationalized in the way I described. So the ability of a provider to black out individual customers. Uh, given their profile and given their willingness to pay and all of that. Uh, hypothetically, that's where we're headed, but that's not really possible right now. It's, we have the capability of doing it, but, but no one so far has actually implemented that kind of regime. But I, in the wake of what happened in Texas, I will be willing to say that they may head in that direction, which is if, if you sign up for this kind of contract and it's, and, then we'll offer you interruptibility or we'll offer you total real-time pricing. Then you get to, you have to stick with your regime and we'll, we'll have the information necessary to implement it. Whereas now we're in a kind of halfway world where you basically have to black out whole areas rather than individual customers, even though the capability is there to do that. Again, we've, we've got total wholesale pricing in a five-minute interval. But most retail customers, even in totally deregulated Texas, are on fixed price retail. So the demand elasticity is almost zero. And so that means everything's on the supply side. So then the question is, well, why didn't the incentives work on the supply side to keep enough capacity going? But we also could ask, if you're going to have pricing, how come don't we need to have it on the, on the demand side as well? And no one likes it. The giddy customers suggest that the the cultural willingness of everyone to buy into real-time pricing is not there yet. And uh, even if that's true in Texas, it's certainly true everywhere else. So we've got a mismatch between the engineering system, the kind of notion of what people think they're buying into with something called retail deregulation, which is only lower prices. Well, oop, no, no, sometimes, sometimes they're going to be high. Well, if no one wants that, then the point of deregulation is sort of lost because we're back to total free wholesale pricing and total rigidity on the retail side. And guess what? That was California in 2001. I, you and I probably did a podcast way back when about what happened in California, and that's exactly what happened. So it's sort of like you can't be half pregnant. I mean, you can't, either you have pricing or you don't. If, if, if you don't, you might as well have vertically integrated utilities and rate regulated tariffs and you pay too much um, all the time. And uh, that's where some of the country still is, right? We, we, but Texas went for deregulation, but it's an odd mixture of total nakedness and yet not all at the same time. Peter Van Doren is editor of Regulation Magazine and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.